0: Great pleasure to introduce Professor Andreas Glaser, who's a full professor now at the University of Chicago, and he's ta- his work tackles some of the uh, crucial uh, problems in sociological theory, but does so through uh, ethnography as well as through historical uh, research. Uh, and his focus of his investigations has been on uh, Germany, Eastern Germany in particular, in the late 20th century. So his first book, uh, *Divided in Unity*, is uh, a wonderful analysis of the reun- reunification of the Berlin police force to investigate social, uh, how identities are formed. And his uh, most recent book just come out, uh, which he's going to talk about today, so I don't need to say anything about it except the title, which is uh, Political Epistemics, The Secret Police, The Opposition, and the End of East German Socialism. Yeah, Thank you very much, Michael, for this kind of introduction. Um, since this uh, title sort refers to the book and it's very long, so let me give you a shorter title for the paper, and I would propose Politics and the Ironies of Control, Reflections from and on late GDR socialism, so that sort of takes it a little bit more Dialectically entangling each other, modern notions and practices of politics have developed in stages. In time, they have assumed ever greater scope, increasingly involving more people across wider territories, while also increasing in scale or depth, reaching into the bodies, hearts, and minds of people. Concurrently, the core of politics as we understand it today became more intentional, assuming the nature of specific projects standing in competition with one another. Eastern European socialisms mark an apex in this development towards large-scale, deeply scoped, competitive political projects. At least initially, they aspired to nothing less than world revolution, carried out by new types of associations, staffed by new type of human beings to be created by, through, and for political action. Of course, Grandiose scope and scale of political ambition is by no means limited to socialism. The global as an aspirational scope practically came into view with the Spanish Empire. Conceptually, it is a byproduct of the emphatic universalism of salvation, religiosity, and of enlightenment philosophy. Scale or depth was added to scope as a political requirement as soon as a territorial state was conceived as an intentional project. Already for Hobbes, it is clear that Leviathan can hold a sword only by also holding a staff. In other words, the condition for the possibility for the formation of states in the modern sense is the fashioning of a citizen subjectivity. In the same vein, the institutionalization of the idea of nationhood is inextricably intertwined with universal schooling centering on the formation of national subjects, and short then, The ballooning of the political, expanding pari passu in scope and scale, is part and parcel of a modernist social imagination. To shed light on the ironies of control inherent in modernist politics, I want to reconsider especially the web of the relationship between politics, knowledge, and power in light of the socialist experience. In particular, I will probe the failure of the Stasi, the secret police of former East Germany, to control the peace and civil rights movements in Berlin during the 1980s. This is a useful vantage point precisely because it shows a key bureaucracy at work producing the kind of knowledge and the kind of coercive power that the party state assumed it needed both for its transformational goals and for the everyday functioning of the political machinery. And yet, we will see that the knowledge Stasi produced and that the coercion it exercised did little to enhance the power of the party state to maintain itself. Instead, it nourished a fantasy of control which ultimately undermined the party state's agentic capabilities. En passant, it will also become clear why the actually existing socialisms in Eastern Europe criminalized (coughs) political opposition, while it will also become clear why the secret police played such a central role in socialism. Let me begin this examination with a set of theoretical clarifications. Now I've become very dense. They are grounded in a social ontology I have elsewhere called consequent processualism. It assumes that the social exists as a dense thicket of processes formed by interconnected action reaction effect chains. In other words, The stuff of the social is a flow of actions prompting each other like chains of falling dominoes. Yet, unlike domino chains, action-reaction effect flows intersect in complicated ways. One action is typically reaction to a number of antecedents, while at the same time giving rise to a multitude of consequences. More, action-reaction effect chains create reflexive loops. For where flow of actions and reactions is repeated in a self-similar manner across time, institutions emerge. These are what they are, not because they are made from the same enduring stuff as any particular dead object is. They endure in time, that is, they have an identity in the form of self-similar flows. This makes institutions more similar to biological organisms whose particular molecular content also changes while the organization of that matter remains self-similar. More, since institutions can be supported by a changing cast of actors, they also bear some similarity to stable ecological niches. Importantly, actions can be projectively articulated across time and space, thus connecting people across continents and generations Unlike the dominoes then, or even environmental niches, actions and reactions do not need to be immediately adjacent to one another in order to produce flow. Incidentally, this is the reason why I prefer the admittedly cumbersome term action-reaction-effect flow to interaction, which at least since the second Chicago school has acquired a definitive face-to-face connotation. The projective articulation of action effects is enabled by socio technological means of communication, transportation, and storage. Books, libraries, and universities, for example, project Aristotle's acts of writing right into our present. And thus, phrases he has used in his metaphysics can find their way into my reflections on the ontology of social life. Now comes the ultimate difference, though, between dominoes, organisms, and niches on the one hand, and actions and reactions on the other. What links reactions to actions is not the physically transmitted impulse of energy following a natural law, nor is it an environmentally triggered, genetically codified mechanism, but a set of alterable, historically, culturally, and even biographically contingent understandings. In other words, my turn to Aristotle is not driven by necessity, but by my belief that I stand to gain from him. Seeing thus, understandings are the condition for the possibility that action-reaction flows may turn reflexively onto themselves, forming institutions. Understandings are the linchpin of processes of institutionalization. What then are understandings? They are discursive, emotive, and kinesthetic ways to differentiate and integrate the world. They thus provide orientation and direction for action. The ordering suggested by understandings is first and foremost a process, but where understandings are validated in agreement with other human beings, or where they are confirmed or disconfirmed in exposed assessments um, of action success, or where they are supported in comparison with already existing understandings, they congeal into more objectified forms. They become transmogrified from existing only in fleeting performance to memorized exemplars um, and or abstracted templates. What we have at our disposal now is a four-step procedure to think through the stability of institutions. For first, we need to link institutions to the action-reaction chains that constitute them. Then, second, we need to find an understanding that produces these links in a regular form. Third, we need to find the processes of validation that stabilize these understandings. And often enough, we will find forth that these issue from yet another institutional arrangement, thus showing us how the layering or dovetailing of different kinds of processes can create local stability in social life. Conversely, we have equipped ourselves with a method to analyze processes of deinstitutionalization, including catastrophic institutional breakdowns such as those occurring in 1989 throughout Eastern Europe. Let me now extend this basic model into the domain of the political. Seen from the perspective of consequent processualism, politics is the intentional effort to form, maintain, or alter institutions. Power is the ability to succeed in politics, no matter how humble or grandiose. What precisely power is in any particular instance depends very much on the institution aimed at and the situation from within which the politician targets it. From the specificity of institutions follows the specificity of power. Only where money, for example, can buy the right kinds of actions is money, power. Likewise not all knowledge is power. Some knowledge may even be detrimental to the exercise of power. Yet. Political knowledge, that is, knowledge about what kind of action-reaction-effect chains are central to what particular institutions, de facto, is an extremely useful prerequisite for acquiring and exercising power. And still, such knowledge is not power on its own. For example, I may know that the business of banks is centrally wrapped around managing incoming and outgoing cash flows. In view of an attempt to ruin or deinstitutionalize a bank, this piece of knowledge becomes power only if I also know how to stage a big enough right. run on a bank. This leads me to my next point. Wherever the institutions targeted by politics go beyond a certain scope, politicians need to team up with others. They need to organize because the formation of institutions distributed over many actors poses a collective and <coughs> actual problem. In fact, organization is everywhere about politics. While institutions exist in the self-similar replication of action-reaction chains, no matter whether there is politics in place to address them, organizations are self-conscious institutions, in the sense that they are associated with sets of politicians trying to maintain. That's what we call managers. One could also say that organizations are engaged in self-politics, in addition to their external political goals. And once more, the conscious effort to form institutions is itself in need of useful, discursive, emotive, and kinesthetic understandings to orient and direct its efforts. In other words, politics is in need of an epistemics, which can be more or less adequate to the task at hand. What then are the major means of politics? Since institutions exist in the self-similar replication of interlinked action-reaction-effect flows, politics can intervene at moments along the path of the process. At the moment of initiating action, for (coughs) example, uh, of articulating that action comes time and space, or at the moment of orienting and directing (coughs) reaction. Sorry, I've just lost my track here. At the moment of initiating action, at the moment of articulating that action across time and space, or at the moment of orienting and directing reaction through understanding. Many actions presume material resources in time and space, and energy. Interfering at this level may be called the politics of general enablement or disablement. Moreover, since actions require understandings to orient and direct them, politicians may want to cultivate or deracinate particular understandings. This may be called the politics of education. If particular understandings about the value of certain goods are already firmly in place, a politics of education can be followed up with a politics of incentivization. Money has the power to prompt action only where greed is already firmly in place. Medals prompt self-sacrifice only if people believe that receiving a medal bestows honor, and if honor is what they care for. Finally, since people can only react to an action if they are placed in its reach, politicians may want to enable or disable the articulation of action effects and time and space by meddling with communication, transportation, and storage. By making ideas secret, for example, by locking away books in poison cabinets or by preventing critiques from becoming stated or by insulating, or dis- insulating critiques once voiced, the flow of actions and reactions can be disrupted. This may be called the politics of articulation or disarticulation. Now you can breathe. It will become much easier with these terms in place. I can now move on to an overarching interpretation of Eastern European socialism. Let me begin by introducing you to the ways in which socialist officials have understood it. The basic presupposition was that Karl Marx had established the fundamental principles of the true science of the social. Central to the science was an understanding of history as an inevitable conflict-ridden progression towards a secular paradise. This strong Manichean sensibility was introduced into the social, thus the strong Manichean sensibility was introduced into the socialist project. The seemingly improbable success of the October Revolution taught socialists as well, however, that the teachings of Marx needed to be adjusted continuously to changing historical circumstances. After all, Marx himself adapted his own teachings to the lessons he had derived from current events, as evinced, for example, by his 18th Brunner and his writings on the Paris Commune. Lenin was thought to be the great adapter of Marxism to post-World War I Russia. That such adjustments were necessary was proven by the fact that Marx himself would have predicted Russia as an unsuitable country to stage a revolution. In this sense, socialist officials spoke of Lenin's teaching as the Marxism of their time and the ideology governing their politics as Marxism-Leninism. Stalin affirming contra-Lenin and contra-Marx that socialism could be established in one country, adjusted the teachings of the masters to the experiences of failed revolutionary uprisings outside of the Soviet Union. Thus, for some time, Marxism-Leninism actually became Marxism-Leninism-Stalinism. After Stalin's death, the party bureaucracy was charged with adjusting socialism to changing historical circumstances. This was a fatal moment. Because the greater adjustments of doctrine had historically been contingent on charismatic leadership as well as on more or less violent party purges. At any rate, Marxism, Leninism, Stalinism was thought to provide the prerequisite political knowledge for the successful formation of socialist institutions all over Eastern Europe after War Socialist parties saw themselves caught up in a mortal battle. This enemy was like an injured beast, deemed to be the more dangerous the closer it came to its certain death. Thus the party sensed that the achievements of the October Revolution were increasingly imperiled. From the party's point of view, these achievements needed to be defended, if necessary, with arms. After all, these institutions constituted humankind's best hope for a better life. For that reason, battle readiness against the capitalist enemy was of the essence. This required mass mobilization and central direction by an agency that had, with the utmost clarity, absorbed the teachings of Marxism-Leninism. Only with a firm eye towards true understandings of history, socialist parties thought they could protect themselves against the enemy's intrusion, its efforts to disrupt the institution-forming action-reaction chains against sabotage and subversion. Hence, the necessity of what Lenin called a party of the new type, Functioning as the vanguard agent of historical necessity. In terms of consequent processualism, it was the task of the party to overcome the collective action problem inherent in all large-scale political projects. In face of the Manichaean confrontation between capitalism and socialism, it could only do so by cleverly combining utter publicity in the general message with politics, which utter secrecy about some of the meanings politicians employed. The apt instrument for mobilization was seen in the appeal of Marxism-Leninism itself. Since its teachings were assumed to be true and since people were assumed to be rational by nature, people could be expected to accept the principles of Marxism-Leninism out of their own insight by their own volition. This understanding of human beings led to a modality of error accounting that has all the characteristics of a theodicy, because it preempted criticisms of the system. According to Socialist Party logic, there were only two reasons why the natural proclivity of humans to accept Marxism Leninism could fail one, insufficiencies in the propaganda efforts um, or in inimical class actions. That was the second reason. In either case, the problem was typically sought in the performance of individuals rather than that of institutions. The task of the party first to establish and then to maintain and adjust socialist institutions thus suggested two different directions for politics. First, there needed to be a gigantic politics of education, enabling as many people as possible to understand and identify with Marxism Leninism. That effort was to be supported by a politics of articulation, making sure that the party's teachings would reach everybody on an ongoing basis, everywhere. This side of socialist politics was covered by a gigantic propaganda machinery, suffusing every corner of society. Second, there needed to be a politics of disablement, which prevented enemies to act against the interests of socialism, and where this failed a politics of disarticulation, limiting the effect flows of enemy action from reaching ordinary citizens. This could be achieved by locking people away, by exiling them, or by keeping them busy with their own problems. It was to be achieved by keeping most of the state's operations a secret, to leave the enemy at a loss about where and how to interfere. Both of these efforts came to be spearheaded by the secret police. Accordingly, the Stasi saw itself as the sword and the shield of the party. Contrary to Marx's own superstructure-infrastructure model, socialism became in the course of time an ever more self-consciously ideology-driven project. Indeed, after the major socialization programs had been completed, ideology was seen as the vehicle to bring socialism about, to maintain it, and to transform it in due time in the direction of a communist society. This hope the hope was that socialism as a set of ideas driving a set of practices and hence institutions would ever better materialize itself. In other words, socialism was de facto treated by the party as if it could self-realize performatively. Former Stasi officer Herbert Eisner expresses the centrality of ideology um, in the following words. Quote, socialism is very sensitive to ideological disturbances the bracket which keeps the whole thing together is ideology. And if this bracket is weakened, the whole system falls apart. In capitalism, that bracket is money. Thus, we always spoke of the ideological work, the party educational work which aimed to make everybody identify with it. The idea was that I will raise my children, that I will influence the neighborhood, the parents' council at school, the National Front, the Association of Fishermen, whatever, in accordance with party policy we wanted that everybody internalized the policy of the party. Indeed, the party aspired to construct what I've called in the book a monolithic intentionality. People were supposed to think, speak, feel, and act in accordance with the angel of history, made flesh in the latest pronouncements of the party, the so-called party line. This goal was supported by a specific socialist ethics With a distant glimmer of true humanity on the horizon, it justified the demand for self-objectification of everyone in the image of the party. Self-objectification, the heroic Kantian fight against subjectivist inclinations, found its expression in a socialist categorical imperative. Former officer Martin Fogt put it this way, We only had to ask ourselves at all times who benefits from your action. Socialism or the capitalist class enemy. In socialist societies, this imperative exerted tremendous pressure on anyone with career ambitions to demonstrate that they were adhering to the party line. Thus, the party created countless opportunities to show allegiance, ranging from active participation in propaganda events to the use of particular speech forms. In some, then, After power had been seized, after the party had established itself as the political master organization, and after the economy had been socialized, the main task for politics became instigating and controlling belief. Ladies and gentlemen, organizational arrangements placing so much of their hopes in the unity and purity of a particular belief are in a rather peculiar situation once their politicians realize that belief can be fake. In cases where the developments developed pro- or de- in cases where the developments projected by the true science of Marxism Leninism did not unfold as expected, the socialist theodicy offered tantalizingly simple diagnoses, blaming unexpected problems on wanting propaganda efficacy or on enemy action. Thus The failure, for example, to economically surpass capitalism in the late 1950s nourished suspicions that people professing socialism were actually feigning their allegiance. Under these circumstances, there appeared to be only one way of finding out what people truly believed. One had to observe them across all of their life contexts, notably in situations where they felt out of the state's reach. Enter the secret police. they were charged to run comprehensive background screenings whenever particular trust was deemed necessary or wherever concrete suspicions about someone's loyalty surfaced. Ultimately, only the secret police, with its methods, able to cut through the veil of public performances, could assess loyalty. One consequence of all of this was what one might want to call a secret police model of truth. Another was the extreme moral valencing of conformist and the criminalization of non-conformist behavior both together fueled an enormous growth of secret police apparatus, which eventually drenched the authorities in a flood of information that could no longer be adequately interpreted. Worse, the focus on belief and its policing fueled distrust in all possible directions, leading to higher levels of self-monitoring and self-seclusion Rather than mobilizing people with socialist ideas, their mechanistic reproduction was widely experienced as infantilizing and depressing, even by the secret police officers themselves. What we have here is a situation in which the policies deployed to exercise control actually undermine control. One could call this an irony of control, which is at the same time an irony of intentional politics. It is the first of several such ironies that I will point to in this talk there were other vital epistemic uh, and practical services rendered by the secret police in socialist countries. For two reasons, social scientific research on the political orientations of the DDR populations were quickly abandoned. First, the results rarely confirmed the party's understandings of itself, and thus the research methods borrowed from Western social science were quickly dismissed as bourgeois nonsense, capable only to see what is, but what not could be and would be. Second, the publication of these results were feared to have demotivational effects, amplifying the problems diagnosed. After such research was abandoned, the secret police stepped in to fill the gap. It used its army of secret informants to inquire out the population's thoughts about their feelings and about their attitudes towards the party's politics. As Janos Karnay has pointed out, chronic shortages in socialist economies were produced by the incentive structure of central planning. Managers not only manufactured in abundance what they could make easily to fulfill their plans, but they also hoarded resources to deal with the vagaries of the plan. To keep the economy running, all production units relied increasingly on so-called fixers. These were people enmeshed in personal networks who could strike barter deals across the plan. They thus introduced counter-plan practices, which alone were able to maintain a semblance of planning. Precisely because the secret police had lots and lots of lateral contact, it regularly served the role of a fixer. Thus, the Stasi stole Western technologies, specialty chemicals, or other urgently needed components from the class enemy in the West. Within the GDR, it helped to broker deals about supplies from coal to apartments, and it regularly acted as a purveyor of information that could not travel through official channels. Of course, there were definite boundaries to this trickster work, set up by the secrecy requirements of the Stasi. Central planning was an effort to control as many economic action-reaction links as possible by monopolizing the projective articulation of supply and demand. Once more, control led directly to a loss of control. Irony number two. Let me summarize. In socialism, propaganda and secret police work were flip sides of the same proselytizing project, hoping to realize socialism performatively. The one attempted to propaganda, to propagate true belief. The other tried to stamp out the falsehood endangering. The one aspired to cultivate ethical behavior. The other aspired to stamp out unethical and criminal behavior. The one operated in broad daylight. The other had to operate clandestinely. And both were seen as essential to the institutional reproduction of socialism. And both, for that very reason, grew in size, effort, and budget, Throughout all the many crises socialism went through from its inception, if there was no paper for printing literary texts, there was always paper for printing propaganda materials. If administrative budgets had no room to improve medical services, there was always room to increase the manpower of the police. Thus it tripled in size from the mid-1950s to the end of the GDR, finally supporting about 90,000 full-time Employees while keeping 180,000 full-time, uh, full-time, and part-time informants on call. Let me now show you how the secret police, the Stasi, worked within the parameters set by its role within the socialist project. My analysis will be focused on the attempts of the secret police to control the peace and civil rights movements in Berlin during the 1980s. What interests me here is the question why the Stasi never came to understand the phenomenon of dissidence, in spite of its often-stated intention to do so. This is practically relevant from a policing standpoint because the Stasi failed to check the growth of these movements, its establishment of local and countrywide institutions, and its interlinkage with Eastern and Western European counterparts. This is relevant from the perspective of the state self-politics because such knowledge would have appreciated the party of significant reasons for its own propagandistic inefficacy. As an epistemic project of the state, moreover, the secret police's knowledge-making about dissidents throws an interesting light on the ways in which the state more generally produced knowledge about itself. Systematic comparisons with the party state's other epistemic projects reveal that the causes of Stasi's failure are symptomatic for the system as a whole. In other words, the Stasi case reveals how the state's effort at political knowledge-making were in the end undermining its chances for successful self-politics, which is to say its own power. This is irony number three. So who were the dissidents the Stasi dealt with? The situation of dissidents in East Germany was very different from those, let's say, in Poland or in Hungary. Here's why. First, until 1961, when the Berlin Wall was built, 2.7 million people, about 15% of the population, escaped through the Berlin Gap in the Iron Curtain. The strain of people, unhappy with socialism, preempted classical liberal or conservative dissidents in the GDR. The exception were Protestant ministers who, after leaving their flock in the East, faced re-employment prohibitions in the West. Not surprisingly then, people from a Protestant milieu played a significant role in non-conformist scenes. In fact, the Protestant Church supported vital, supplied vital resources for party-independent activists in times terms of space, access to duplication and communication technology. It thus contravened the state's politics of general disablement vis-a-vis anybody unwilling to live their political ambitions within the frameworks provided by the party. The second reason for the peculiar situation of dissidents in the GDR is that after the Soviet Union, the GDR was perhaps the Eastern European country where socialism carried the highest legitimacy. Due to Germany's Nazi history, nowhere else could socialism more successfully cast itself as a living bulwark against fascism. It is significant in this respect that even among the members of the last politburo of the GDR, about half were wartime anti-fascists. Fighters. Given both of these reasons, it is not surprising that dissidents outside of the party, and on a somewhat larger scale, um, it could only appear in the 1980s, when the new Cold War triggered fears of an all out nuclear war. The peace activists recruited themselves from two different pools who critically interacted with one another. On the one hand, there were more or less radical Protestants willing to break with the Lutheran two world doctrine. On the other hand, there were non-religious young men and women with clear sympathies for socialism as an idea who had, however, also repeatedly come into conflict with the socialist party state. They felt, even more clearly, and increasingly so in the 1980s, that socialism needed thorough reform. The Stasi's understanding of dissident activity was fully embedded within the party's phased understandings of history. In the mid In the early to mid-1950s, the Stasi trained its efforts at fighting the domestic class enemy, presumed to resist the party state's project. This included churches as agents of reaction. More importantly, however, the open borders in Berlin made the two Germanies a playground for spies that the Stasi endeavored to catch. With the wall up in 1961, however, spying slowed down considerably. Moreover, during the later part of the 1960s, an understanding of GDR society began to prevail that saw socialism as so well established now that there there no longer existed any domestic class enemies, says former officer Martin Vogt. We have always worked from the assumption that in a developed socialist society there could not exist such a thing as a genuine opposition. All there was was a so-called opposition, which was really an anti-socialist political underground inspired and directed by the class enemy from abroad. For the party and the Stasi, the problem of dissidence was, in a sense, always already understood. It resulted from a conjunction of a GDR citizenry that had failed to absorb the teachings of Marxism-Leninism and the malicious interventions of the foreign class enemy engaging in ideological warfare. It would be too easy, however, to see this understanding of dissidents as foreign inspired as a mere fantasy. The theory was developed in response to historical experiences, which in the eyes of the Stasi validated this theory. Until 1961, Western organizations did indeed try to foment and organizing discontent within socialist countries. The churches in the 1950s were indeed defining themselves in opposition to the socialist project, and they did receive continued and ample support from West German brother churches. Yes, um, yet by the mid-1970s, they had reached a compact with the state arguing for a church embedded within socialism. Nevertheless, with the increasing importance of electronic mass media, the entirety of the GDR came into the reach of West German radio and television broadcasts. And no doubt, these Western broadcasting services insisted... On the official West German government position that the GDR was illegitimate, that the population of the GDR was suppressed, that the Bonn government was the only true democratic government Germany had. Finally, a few prominent cases of socialist dissidents, notably those of Robert Havemann and Wolf Biermann, were interpreted as validating the notion that dissidents in the GDR was the result of capitalist. For the Stasi, it seemed logical to apply the theory of Western-inspired, organized dissidents also to the emerging peace and civil rights movements in Berlin in the 1980s. At the height of these movement development, the Stasi estimated that there were about 2,500 activists in the entire country, organized in several hundred little groups. All were known by name and address, and all were under surveillance by hundreds of secret informants. The telephones and the apartments of the more important members were bugged. Thus, Stasi knew almost about all meetings. They knew approximately who said what to whom, and they knew about almost all events planned way in advance. These events were exclusively peaceful, typically small demonstrations, vigils, blues masses, political night prayers, petitions, information fairs about groups activities. Given the size of the population, this political underground, as you called it, was a relatively small affair, and yet it was deemed very dangerous. The reasons should be clear from the aforementioned character of the socialist project as an ideology-driven attempt to perform a self-fulfilling prophecy. The party feared that these intramural influence agents could validate in face-to-face interactions the messages of Western mass media, undercutting its own propaganda efforts. Moreover, the party feared that with the interplay of Western propaganda and local influence agents posing in the guise of a democratic opposition, the GDR would become the target of blackmail on the international diplomatic scene. What was at issue were international recognition and its bargaining position in obtaining hard currency credits which became ever more necessary to finance a surge in consumption spending. In short, the party state was firmly convinced that the actions of the activist underground undermined the socialist project severely. In this situation, the secret police was charged with the task to stop all dissident activities. Its ideal way to do so was to collect evidence for a trial. Um according to uh, the Code of Political Crimes um, of, the, of the Penal Code of the DDR. All of these cases opened against activists began with the presupposition of a violation of a particular set of laws, typically charging either the subversion of the ideological resolution of the DDR population or the transmission of secret information to the class enemy. Had it worked, the end at imprisonment would have operated as a combined combination of a politics of general disablement as prison is designed to preempt action. It would have been a politics of disarticulation as it aimed to sever action effects flows between prisoners and their friends. It would have been a politics of education by withdrawing a source of recognition for dissident understandings while spreading fears of the state. In other words, imprisonment was a totalizing form of politics. Three factors in particular militated against this route of stopping activists. First, the dissident activities were designed to remain on this side of the law. And if they were not legal, they were calculated to fall into the category of misdemeanors rather than crimes. Second, the post-Stalinist GDR became a more and more bureaucratic and with it a legalistic country. Although it never became ruled by law... There was an increasing emphasis on rule-governed proceedings. In Weberian terms, the formal rationality of procedure began to gnaw into the substantive rationality of the vanguard concept. Accordingly, the Stasi maintained a legal department which checked the formal merits of every single case. The Stasi's main problem of operation within this legalized environment was that most of its evidence rested on the testimony of secret informants. These, however, had to be protected both as sources that could continue to produce information and to uphold the promise of secrecy given to these informants. Third, however, even where legal proceedings would have been possible, they very often deemed for political reasons inopportune. With the ideal legal ending to casework effectively blocked, the Stasi took recourse to methods of harassment as an alternative, the Stasi's term for these methods was Zersetzung, or it means in English dissolution. These aimed at activists' sense of reality, including their sense of self and social integration. Harassment included efforts to prevent activists from gaining education adequate employment. It enforced restrictions on travel clandestine but obvious searches of apartments, performative shadowing in the streets, the instigation of sexual jealousy between movement members, the spread of rumors about the moral character of a particular person, or simply the amplification of conflict that existed in marriages, friendships, or groups, such that the members would busy each other with infighting. Even though secret police harassment created real suffering, it failed to prevent the opposition from growing. Instead, it contributed to its radicalization. Police harassment, identified as such, constituted an obvious human rights violation. Thus, dissidents had evidence for the state's contemptuous actions, which they learned to broadcast to the world. In the book, I call this the echo Homo strategy. The very embarrassment that the parties they tried to escape on the international scene by controlling expressions of dissidents were thus produced by these control efforts and thus the Stasi contributed to the creation of the specter it tried to exercise. So, here have control irony number four. How about the Stasi's efforts to prove connections between activists and Western secret service agencies? Now that all the important dissident files of the secret police have been studied time and again, we can be certain that the Stasi never really had proof for this theory. And I say this even though it is quite possible that the one or the other dissident actively worked for the CIA or the BND or such organizations. Yet, the the secret the party could not unlock was that dissidence was produced from within the political dynamics of the GDR itself. Says peace and civil rights activist Thomas Klein, quote, nobody more effectively produced dissidence than the party state itself, end quote. Most activists began their deviant careers with experiences of bitter disappointment at not being taken seriously by the party state. They were shocked by shaming rituals, or they rebelled against overly zealous, heavy-handed propaganda. Unlike party officials who were, through their personal networks, led to rationalize similar experiences as failures of particular individuals, future activist networks began to validate them as problematic characteristics of the socialist system. More, with its control efforts, the secret police amplified the original causes that led activists to speak up against the party state in the first place. If this is so, then why did the Stasi not discover this root cause of dissidence? And why did it remain oblivious to its own role in worsening the problem rather than helping to resolve it? To understand this, we have to take the organizational cultures of the Stasi and the party into account. Anyone writing a document within an organization engages in an act of communication between a lower and a higher level of bureaucracy. Such documents are taken to reveal the qualities of the writers, here that of a secret police officer or a member of the party. Accordingly, officers had to follow conventions. They had to keep two genres of writing which allowed them to cater to their superiors' expectations. And what these expected was minimally the performance of a flawless class consciousness. That officers could do by making sure that they clearly distanced themselves from the enemy's views, while at all times publicly identifying with those of the leadership within Stasi and the party, both locally and nationally. There were even particular socialist speech forms to accomplish this task. Nothing could be said that looked in the faintest like a critique of anyone about themselves. The universal slogan in the GDR socialism was no discussion about mistakes. One had to be positive. One had to avoid anything that could be read as undermining mobilization and resolve. Accordingly, the officers described their report writing acts as acute acts of self-censorship. One of them said, the principle was simple what should not exist cannot exist, end quote. Another said, quote, we need to castrate our reports, end quote. And a third referred to his reports simply as lullabies. That situation was aggravated by the fact that the knowledge generating ideology underlying much of the socialist bureaucracy was one of contract engineering. Lower levels were supposed to fulfill only limited, clearly circumscribed tasks. In particular, they were supposed to generate facts, but neither interpretation nor analysis. That indeed was the prerogative of those higher up, simply because they had access to more information. Of course, this kind of thinking was thoroughly indexical, characterizing work all the way up to the Politburo itself, the ultimate analytical referent of this understanding was exactly nowhere. Let me summarize my points while trying to penetrate to the root cause of all those ironies of intentional politics that I have listed. The secret police of the former GDR was able to accumulate an immense storehouse of information about dissidents, And yet, they never came to really understand the phenomenon of dissidents, In spite of the fact that they aspired to comprehend its causes, Um, they in fact could not because political knowledge-making in the GDR was institutionalized in such a way that the development of such causal knowledge was preempted. The party state had formed practices of communication that made learning, that in any way challenged fundamental assumptions immensely difficult. All knowledge throwing a critical light on the functioning of the socialist system In fact, anything that looked as if it could endanger mass mobilization had to be kept secret or was best not even developed. No discussion of mistakes was the guiding slogan. As I show in great detail in the book, the fundamental tension in this relationship between knowledge and power lies in the following. In order to act, people need to understand the field in which they are acting with sufficient certainty. Understandings are essential because they orient us and they direct us. And since we know how easily we can be misled by less than reliable understandings, making efforts to validate our understandings are necessary to get us going. Agency, that's our ability to act in this sense, is contingent on sufficiently validated understandings. But this means also that raising doubts has a detrimental effect on agency. Those who crave to act, therefore, crave sufficiently certain knowledge, potentially perceiving anybody drawing this certainty into doubt as a spoiled sport. Moreover, remember that in socialist lore, Lenin's genius lay in not listening to petty orthodox Marxists who told him that imperial Russia was a country very far from meeting the conditions for a revolution. In leading Red October to a triumphant conclusion, Lenin revealed that the true revolutionary knew that decisive action could always change circumstances in such a way that the knowledge of yesteryear might become old hat very quickly. What counted as true political knowledge, aiming at the formation of institutions, therefore, is knowledge accommodating itself to the performativity of human action. In other words, true political knowledge allows for the possibility of self-realization reflecting the conditions of its own possibility. Accordingly, critiques deriving their punch from a mere analysis of what currently exists are therefore always in danger to be, in the truest sense of the word, no more than petty nagging. True political knowledge thus necessarily requires an encompassing picture of social life in its temporal progression into the future. And such knowledge, it was believed, in socialism was only available at the center of the party. Its instantiation moved from Marx to Lenin to Stalin and then to the apparat of the Politburo. Yet, none of the successors of Stalin had either the analysis and all the charismatic authority to make accommodations to changing circumstances in much the same way that Lenin did. Ironically, socialist institutions rested on charismatic political epistemics. And perhaps tragically, this charisma was lost before the model of political epistemics could be changed. Power is, as I said at the beginning of this talk, the ability to form, maintain, or alter institutions. Unfortunately, what is and is not power is revealed only within a wider temporal horizon. For that reason, and quite myopically, powers often perceived merely as the ability to get action going. Socialism, inspired by revolutionary ambitions, placed in this vein a huge premium on mobilization, on getting everybody united behind the party's agenda. To support mobilization, the party instituted processes of validation which could safely only validate that which was already known. To say it bluntly, in 1989, Leninism was still the Marxism of its time. Knowledge formation cut off from renewal through experience and thoroughgoing critical procedures becomes completely circular. Party officials believed in the knowledge they had, and how could they not? Their environment constantly validated it. At the bottom, there were, of course, doubts because people saw the project coming off the rails with their own eyes, especially as the 1980s were wearing off. But there was also always the hope that what they saw was just a local occurrence, and that those further up, owing to their deeper knowledge, knew better. When it became ever clearer to party members that what appeared at first as local problem was indeed a failure of the system, the party no longer had institutional frameworks to develop better understandings of their situation that would have enabled successful self-politics. In fact, then, The political epistemics of the party state led to a self-fetishization of socialism at a particular stage of its development. Unable to act, devoid of the power that would have come about with the help of a different kind of knowledge, the party state simply imploded. Thank you.